We continue our series, Advent series this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or second time, we're glad that, that you're here with us. One of the striking elements of the gospel accounts is that they give us a very vivid picture of the emotional life of Jesus. One of the a Christian uh, psychologist and, and counselor described emotions like this. He says that emotions are the language uh, of the heart. Emotions tell us what the heart is saying. And emotions, therefore, are, are core to the human experience. Because we're created in God's image, we're made to respond from the depths of our heart to his creation, as he himself does. But our tendency is, is one of, of two errors, is either to fully embrace our emotions, as our culture does. Our culture fully embraces an emotional experience, or there, there can be a, a religious tendency to just completely reject them, that they don't, they don't play a, a role in the life of the Christian. But what we see in the gospel accounts is that Jesus himself, he felt things very deeply. He was a very emotional person. And as the God-man, as the perfect man sent from heaven, born in the likeness of a woman, but God himself, he felt these things and reacted to these things in a perfect way. As a church, our Advent tradition is to take the Advent season and to reflect together on how the character of Christ is manifesting itself in our lives. So we as a church, excuse me, make a concerted effort to slow down in the month of December, to slow down in the Advent season and to reflect on how the, the character and, and, and the image of God in Christ is growing in us. Because if, if we are Christians, if we've if we're been born again, if Jesus has saved us, he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, of light, to his to kingdom, if he's regenerated us, if he's given us a new heart, then that should show itself in a progressive, uh, bearing, a progressive act of bearing fruit in our lives. So it's right for us at different times to pause and reflect and ask the question, how is the character of, of Jesus growing inside me? And we're going to do that this Advent season by looking at four different teachings on the emotional life of Jesus. So we're asking ourselves the question, how are the emotional life, how is our inner life, how is that manifesting itself in a way that it would manifest itself in Jesus? Last week, we looked at compassion. And compassion is a, is a word that's used to describe the emotional life of Jesus more than any other. Compassion is a word that's used to describe the emotional response of Jesus more than any other. And this week, we're actually going to look at an emotion of Jesus that is probably even more fundamental, though, than compassion. This week, we're looking at the love of Jesus. The genesis for this sermon and what started this, this thinking uh, for the last several years of my life was an article, a long essay by B.B. Warfield, a theologian from the 19th century, called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And this is what he says about love and compassion. He simply says, love lies at the bottom of compassion. Love lies at the bottom of compassion. Interestingly, love is only attributed to Jesus one time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Only one time. And it's when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. It says that he looked at him and he loved him. But in John's gospel, the word compassion doesn't appear one time. 
Instead, the word love is attributed to Jesus frequently. John is constantly talking to us about the love that Jesus has. Sometimes it's a love of benevolence that resembles a kind of compassion, but often the love that Jesus has is simply a love of sheer delight and joy. This morning we're going to look at our text, and I'm going to do something this morning that I don't do very often. We're going to deviate from the text that's printed on your, on your sermon card there. On your sermon card we said we were going to look at John 15, but instead we're going to look at John 13. This is the text that was read to us by Justin in our scripture reading. And as I meditated on this text, it seemed that the Lord had a word for our church here particularly. So John chapter 13, I'm going to read to us again verses 1 through 12. And I will actually just read one verse in chapter 14 and two verses in chapter 15. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was supposed to wrap around him. That was wrapped around him, excuse me. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Flip over to chapter 14. Just one verse I want to highlight is verse 31. Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you are a God of love. And we're grateful that Jesus is a loving Savior and friend. Father, we come this morning from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of experiences this week. Some come with joy and expectation of others come with trial and loss. And we all need to hear from you, God. And we believe that you've spoken to us finally in your son, and we believe that you've spoken to us in your word. Father, would you send your spirit to illuminate the text to us? 
with the truth of the gospel and the reality of the Lord Jesus and his great love for us be impressed deeply into our hearts through the preaching of your word. Father, would you help me as I preach? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning and then some application. So it's all under the heading, the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus, the occasion, the disciples, the Father. The occasion, the disciples, the Father. First, the love of Jesus, the occasion for it. This section that we've turned to in John chapter 13 is the beginning of what's known as the upper room discourse, which begins in John chapter 13 and goes on through John 17. And this is Jesus' final teachings to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. And we see this word love come to us in 13 verse 1, the beginning of this upper room discourse. Love, it's a word that we use in all sorts of contexts and times, right? And really we mean it in different ways based on the context in which we use it. We, we love our kids, we love our parents, some of you love 60s rock music, we love a good movie or a good book, we love to go camping, we love not to go camping, we love the ducks or we love the beavers, etc., etc. And many of you in this room, you love Jesus. And you love Jesus in a way that is very special and unique to you. And really, you love Jesus more than you love anything else in the entire universe. That's what Jesus describes the love that his disciples have for him. That they will love him, that we would love him more than we love anything else in the entire universe. But brothers and sisters, more than you love Jesus, what we're going to study this morning is the great love with which Jesus loves you. The Upper Room Discourse starts like this. Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. A striking element of John's gospel is that John will describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? John will say that of himself at least four different times. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And as many of you know, this is an interesting feature of John's gospel because the other gospel writers don't speak this way. Luke doesn't say that he's the disciple that Jesus loved. So what are we to make of this? Over the years, I, I, I think I've simply thought of John's use of this referential description of himself in, in two ways. One, I thought, well, Jesus must have a particular love for John. And two, there's always been this secondary nagging thought that John is a little bit arrogant to tell us about it all the time. He's, and he, and it, what's even more kind of potentially irritating about it is he, he says it in the third person. <laughs> One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. I've always thought of it sort of like, the, like saying, the teacher's favorite is standing right next to her, while I'm standing right next to her. But after studying this text this week, 
Let me suggest something else to us. John never gives himself this self-referential title until after chapter 13, verse 1. 13, 1 tells us that Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. 13, 1 doesn't tell us that he loved a disciple. It tells us that he loved all of his disciples. And I would suggest to us that John has grasped something that I hope that the Spirit of God presses into our hearts right now that we, that you, are the disciple whom Jesus loved. We have people in our lives that make us feel this way. We know people in our lives that, that when we're around them, we, they, they make us feel like we're the most important person in the world to them. You know, at least for that moment, you know, a, a grandmother perhaps comes to mind or a teacher and a child relationship. And of course, a best friend or, or a spouse, their disposition, their demeanor, their attentiveness to us. It emanates their love for us. And this is the love that the Lord Jesus has towards John. And this is the love that the Lord Jesus has towards you. He is intimately concerned with you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And he loves you. And he loves you completely. And he loves you fully. Toward the end of John's gospel, he'll give us a purpose statement for why he's written this gospel account in John 20, 31. He'll say, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing is the aim of John's gospel. The word believe or believing or believes occurs at least 70 times in John's gospel. 70 times. John wrote so that we might believe in it by believing we might have life in his name. Well, believe what? The discerning listener might ask. Believe what? Listen to just a couple places in John's gospel as we kind of construct this idea of what we are to believe. The gospel opens in 1-7. It says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John 3, 15 and 16 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We're believing, we're believing that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God, We're believing that he is the atonement for sin. We're believing that he's the one who will live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserved to die in our place, on our behalf, as a substitute. Believing that gives us life in his name. 
It gives us new, fresh life that living water will flow out of us. That we may begin to grasp as John the Apostle and the disciple has here, that he is the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus will tell us, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. The greatest love that the Lord Jesus can show is to lay down his life, and he's done it for you. And he's done it till the end. So today, at the end of service, when church is over, say to someone, you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. And say to yourself, preach to yourself, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. There's an old hymn by Bernard of Clairvaux that says this. All those who find thee find a bliss, nor tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. You know, we sing when we were young children, maybe in nursery, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's something about the love of Jesus when it's laid upon our hearts that it's almost indescribable to us. But when you have it, you know you have it. It's sort of like the advice that you offer to a young man in his early 20s when he asks you, how will I know she's the one? And you say, you'll just know. (laughs) You'll just know. The love of Jesus is like that. There's a sense of it upon the heart. A sense upon the the heart that that reciprocates itself back to him in love. A love that is beyond love of anything else in all of our lives. Another striking element, (coughs) excuse me, at this point in John's gospel chapter 13 here, is that Jesus doesn't speak to the world again after this point. Okay, he ends his public ministry in chapter 12. So at this point on, he's only speaking to, he's giving his final teachings to his disciples. The section ends in, in John 12 like this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid, hid himself from them. Though he'd done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 1242 says, nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that came or comes from God. Jesus departs and he hids himself from the crowd. And there's this, seems like there's this, there is some level of belief, John tells us, in these authorities. But they must not have tasted the deep love down in the heart deep enough to actually confess him. Peter seems to have this kind of impression upon the heart. Because Peter described it earlier in chapter 6. Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's words are so refreshing to us, aren't they? We feel that, don't we? We feel as the world is shaking around us. We we know those that have departed from the faith and have, have gone out from us. And sometimes we're left just asking this question, almost this rhetorical question, are are we going to go away as well? 
And sometimes all we're left with is where else would we go? For you alone hold the words of eternal life. We've believed it. We've tasted it. We've seen it. When everything else doesn't seem to make sense, we've tasted it. It's been pressed down on our hearts. So in our passage this morning, this is still point one. It's going to have a cone effect today. The points will get shorter, so don't worry. In our passage this morning, we find Jesus intimately alone with his disciples. And we see that he is keenly aware of three things. And these three things are given to us in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. I'm going to go backwards, though. First, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. The first thing that Jesus is intimately aware of is he's aware of his identity with the Father. He knows exactly where he's come from. He knows exactly to whom his rightful fellowship is with. In fact, he tells us that in the very beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That's Jesus' place. Is at the right hand of the Father. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But Jesus knows, He intensely, intimately knows His identity with the Father, that He's come from God and that He's going back to God. But two, He knows that going back to the Father is going to be a violent event. Verse 1 says, now before the Passover feast, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The hour had come to depart. And this departure was going to be a violent departure. Death on a cross. And we know that, and we know that Jesus is aware of this because of the allusion to the Passover in verse 1. Jesus is acutely and keenly aware that he is the true Lamb of God. He knows that he has to be crucified. He has to be sacrificed in the place of his people so that the sins of the people, that the wrath of God might be placed on him instead. He's acutely aware that the hour is approaching, the hour of his impending death. And third, he's aware of his betrayal. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Later in verse 20 and 21, it describes how deeply troubled Jesus was. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So all of that, all of that is, is acutely on a top of mind awareness for Jesus. His identity with the Father, the impending violent departure, and Judas's betrayal. That's the occasion. That's point one. That's the context and the occasion of Jesus' love. Now let's look at Jesus' love to the disciples and then to the Father. Point two, Jesus loves his disciples. The foot washing scene that we're given here gives us a dramatic parable of deeper things. This foot washing is a dramatic 
enacted out in real life, in real time, a parable. See, the foot washing was a custom. As many of you know, foot washing was a custom. As, as walking the roads of the ancient world wearing sandals, it, it, it made your, your feet particularly dirty. Especially if you, if, if, without getting too graphic, when things come to mind of the fact that there weren't advanced sewer systems and so on. So you can imagine the kinds of things that were running through the streets. So a foot washing, when you arrived at someone's home, was, was, was a custom of sorts. But here you have Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the master, washing his disciples' feet. And then he asks them after this, 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 this intimate scene, when he gets down and he takes off his outer garment and he washes their feet, he asks them the key question in verse 12. Do you understand what I have done? tells us in the middle of the passage, verse 7, what I am doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will. Surely in the moment, he says, do you understand what I've done? The answer could have been, sure, you just washed our dirty feet. Sure, yeah. But the fact that Jesus says in verse 7, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards you will. And the fact that he asks in verse 12, do you understand what I've done, means that this scene is a living parable to us about something much greater, far greater than the actual washing of their feet. It was a living parable of what he was going to do for them that night. It's what Paul describes to us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's what Paul describes for us in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind of, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He found himself in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of this, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The hour had come. It says, the hour had come for Jesus to be the Passover lamb. The sin of the world was to be atoned for by the death of the firstborn son who was also the lamb. This would not be like Abraham and Isaac. A lamb was not going to be found in the thicket. There is no lamb in the thicket of Gethsemane. There is only the lamb who lies awake praying to the father for the cup to pass. Do you understand what I have done to you? I have washed your feet to show you that I'm going to wash your dirty and corrupt souls. I'm going to cleanse you from the stain of sin. I'm going to cleanse you from the power that death holds over you. I'm going to cleanse you from the wrath of God that you deserve. I'm going to cleanse you from the power of the tyrannical prince of this world. I'm going to love you until the end. And then I'm going back to the Father in resurrection power, where I'll be met with myriads of angels and the hosts of heaven. 
and glory and honor will be bestowed upon me. And I will be given the name that is above every other name. And I will reign there until I put all my enemies under my feet. And then I will come again to establish my kingdom on the earth. And my people will reign with me forever and ever in perfect peace, harmony, and love. Because I am the suffering servant and I am the Davidic king. I will love my disciples until the very end. To love to the end, verse 1, means to love to the uttermost. It, it, it means it's a kind of love that's undiluted. It's a kind of love that's uncut. If you were to go to Starbucks this kind of year with Aaron Edmonds, he would order an uncut eggnog latte, okay? Which means they're not going to put milk in with the eggnog. Instead, they're just going to do straight eggnog. And when they hit that steam button, it sounds like a 747 is taken off inside that Starbucks. It's uncut. One commentator describes this kind of love as a purified love. To love absolutely. You know what? There is no place in all the universe where there is a love like this. There isn't love like this in the best of marriages. There isn't love like this in the best of friendships. All love under the sun is diluted. It's cut. It's not perfectly purified. It's not absolute. But there is only one love that is like this, that will love to the uttermost. And that is the love of Jesus for you. Your heart needs this kind of love. If you're not a Christian here this morning, every human heart searches high and low for a kind of love that is purified in absolute. Whether it be in another human being, whether it be in the accolades of, of co-workers, whether it be in a myriad of places, but the human heart is searching and longing for this absolute, purified, undiluted, uncut kind of love, and your heart will never find it until you see that only Jesus Christ alone can love this way. And he loved you to the very end. Imagine, I just want to meditate on one more thought in his love for the disciples before we move on to the love of the Father. As we set it up in verses 1, 2, and 3, this, this, uh, this inner turmoil that Jesus must have been going through, he's, he's aware of his identity with the Father, he's aware that the hour is approaching, he's aware that Judas... Iscariot is about to betray him. The inner turmoil that must have existed in him. When we're in the midst of it, we don't, we don't realize what it is for the perfect son of God. The sinless son of God who dwelt in perfect purity and glory from eternity past to come dwell among us. I was thinking of... Um, when you go to an airport, and public places try really, really, really hard to make it probably as absolutely as uncomfortable as possible for smokers, right? I was traveling recently, and you walk by these 
these, these rooms that are like 12 by 12, and they look like a smoke bomb has gone off inside of them, and there's like 20 people kind of shoulder to shoulder just like trying to get a cigarette before they take off. And you walk by that room, and you're like, you know, I think I'd like to take up smoking. <laughs> or it's that, or, or you're, at the, you're at the motor center at a Blazer game, and it's like 19 degrees outside, and it's halftime, and these people are outside just shivering to death, in this, hovered in this little corner. Imagine as a father or a mother saying to your 10-year-old child, I want you to go spend 10 minutes in that room at the airport. I just want you to endure it. Your child wouldn't last 30 seconds. Wouldn't last 60 seconds. It'd be so overwhelming. That just pales as an illustration to what it must have been like for the Son of God to walk among us. He washes Judas's feet. The one who was going to betray him. The prince of life washed his feet. Point three, he loves his father, the love of the father. Only one time are we actually told in the gospels that Jesus loves the father. It's in John 14, 31. I read to us. But again, B.B. Warfield, who wrote the article, says this. He says, in this single verse, it is set before us as the motive of Jesus' entire saving act, and particularly of his offering himself up. This one verse gives to us the entire motive for Jesus' saving act. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus, by saying this, wants his listeners to know, he wants us to know that that, that, that dreadful night was not being controlled simply by demonic betraying and demonic denying and demonic lying. But that night and the events that were happening was being ruled and controlled by love. He says, I am obeying the Father, verse 31, so that the world might know that I love the Father. He says, I'm not controlled by the lies of this false witness, Judas. I am controlled by the love that I have for my Father. He says the cross is not at root the coercion of evil. It is the compliance of love. The roots of the cross reach back before creation. The roots of the cross reach back into the eternal Godhead where God the Son has always infinitely loved God the Father. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world might know that I love the Father. The love that Jesus has for the Father is a love that compels his perfect obedience. His love for us, his love for us to the uttermost, his love for us to the end is a, a love that we could call a love of benevolence. But his love, his love to the Father is a love of perfect obedience and deference. Obedience and deference 
To be sure, this love that Jesus has for the Father is reciprocal. It's a perfect love that has existed from eternity past. Jesus will tell us in John 3.35 that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20 says the Father loves the Son and shows him all things he himself is doing. The Father's heart is for the Son. And the Father's heart for the Son always says two things. I love my Son when he says, this is my beloved Son. And second, it says, I take pleasure and delight and joy in my son when he says, with whom I'm well pleased. The love that the father and the son have is a love of perfect delight and pleasure. The father is well pleased with his son. The father's soul delights in his son. When he looks at his son, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes everything that he sees. Perfect love. The rest of the New Testament will tell us things like this in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That the Son is the image of the Father. The writer of Hebrews will tell us in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The son loves the father and the father loves the son. They seek one another's glory in each other. And here's the point. This is the definition of love at the very end here. That all love is a self-giving sacrifice. All love is a self-giving sacrifice. From eternity past, this is how God the Father has existed. Excuse me, God, the triune God has existed, and it is how God existed when Jesus was manifest to us on this earth. That the Son always seeks the glory of the Father, and the Father always seeks the glory of the Son. They love each other with a perfect, deferential, self-giving love. And in doing so, they seek the other one's glory. They seek the other one's significance instead. This is a God, this is why this is massively significant to us. This is a God who is independent of us. There is no need in God for our reciprocal love. Because God already has a perfect love within himself. Here's why that's good news. Because it, doesn't mean, it means that God is not a weak God. He's not a God that, 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 that somehow is of, of need of us, that somehow has some loss in himself, that somehow has a, a shortcoming in himself. And it therefore means that he can come to us in perfect, benevolent love. He can come to us in absolute, self-giving, self-denying love. There's no need from us in his, in his, in his giving of himself to us. Which means that we know that his motive is, is absolutely pure and his motive is absolutely right and that he loves us simply because he does. So practical. A few closing thoughts. Because the point of all this is for us to ask in this Advent season, how is the love of the Lord Jesus being manifest in our lives? If we see that Jesus is characterized by love for the Father... And Jesus is characterized by love for disciple, love for neighbor. How does that look in our lives? Well, first, we simply said it. 
The greatest commandment is we would love the Lord our God with everything that we are. And that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And we see that absolutely perfectly in the Lord Jesus himself. He loved the Father perfectly. And he loved his neighbor perfectly. And you're his neighbor. And as that begins to trickle down to your heart, and you see the great love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have for you, it should manifest itself in love for neighbor. Has it in the last year? Second thing we should ask ourselves, have you learned to preach to yourself more in the last year? Have you learned to say, as the Apostle John has, that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved? Have you found those, those, those pathways to the gospel in your own life? Some of them, for me, are places like Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is a place that my mind goes throughout the week. Psalm 16, 11, that in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Where are those places for you? Have you cultivated those kinds of pathways, we can call them, that get us quickly to the gospel, that get us quickly, our minds, when we're, when we're despondent, when we're down, when we're, we're in a socially, we're miffed in a social setting and we're, we're prone to, to, to get bitter, we're prone to shut down, we're prone to get angry and say, say, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At, at the right hand of God, I'll dwell with him forever. There's gonna be pleasures forevermore. It's a, it's a practice. It's a practice that we have to learn to cultivate. Next. Have we grown in obedience? Jesus' love for the Father plays itself out in practical obedience to the will of the Father. Has our love for the Father, our love for God, has it manifest itself in the last year in greater acts of obedience, holiness, holy living, Fourth, have we seen more acts of self-giving love, self-giving sacrifices in our own lives? Brothers, God made men to be providers and protectors. God made us the head of our wife so that we could provide and protect God made us the father of our children so that we could provide and protect. Any degree of leadership that is bestowed upon us by God has been given to us so that we may operate and exercise in self-giving and self-sacrificing love. That we would lay down our life for our family. That we would provide and protect them in ways that we are giving of ourselves. The office of authority the office of leadership is never given for selfish gain. It's never given for our own sake. It's always given for the care of other people. Have we grown in that in the last year? Is your marriage marked more by you laying down your life for your wife, providing and protecting in more ways than you did in the year before? Is your life marked that way as a father? providing and protecting 
for your children. We live in a very, very challenging, a very telling time in our cultural moment where we see men coming out in, 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 in these different um, sexual abuse scandals, men shown to be not providers and protectors, men shown to be predators and wolves and acting in evil, evil, godless ways. And the church has a responsibility to show what true manhood is like, that true manhood provides and protects and cares for and lays down their life for the good of others. And last, by way of application, is have you, have we grown in forgiveness? If the love of the Father and the love of the Son and the unity of the Spirit has trickled down into our lives, then it means that we should lay less hold of our own preferences, we should lay less hold of our own grievances, of the wrongs that have been done to us. The greatest wrong in the world was done to the Son of God. And on the cross, he cried out, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If that can be said by the greatest one, he can be said of you, what does it mean for your relationship to the people around you? You know, the foot washing only occurs in John's gospel and the Lord's Supper doesn't occur in John's gospel. But the Lord's Supper occurs in all three of the synoptics. And they both portray Judas's betrayal at that moment. And I imagine Judas could have walked out of that, of that foot washing and he could have been asked, well, what just happened in there? And he could have said, oh, it's kind of awkward. Jesus washed our feet. And... Uh, I got up and left. And he would have no idea of the massive significance about what Jesus was doing. The same, I think, could be said of the Lord's Supper. Judas could have walked out and could have been asked by somebody, well, what just happened in there? And he goes, oh, we just, we had the, we had the Passover meal. Jesus broke bread and he, and he gave it to us. Was that it? Yeah, that was pretty much it. He'd have no sense upon his heart about the massive significance of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted that night. And that's what we have an opportunity to come and celebrate this morning. To celebrate the life and death and resurrection, the love of God poured out for us at that Last Supper, which is now inaugurated in the communion table in the church. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the love that you showed us. We ask God for your help now as we come to this table and we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this table that we'll come and celebrate now is open to all who have repented of their sins and been baptized. If that describes you and you're joining us for another church, we invite you to partake of, the, of, this, of this covenant meal with us. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to not partake Instead, we'd encourage you to just consider the words that were preached. Consider how God might have you respond to the good news of Jesus. The good news that forgiveness of sins is available to you and life everlasting 
And life in his name can be yours by simply repenting of your sins and turning to him in faith and trust. You can come up row by row, take your elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in communion corporately.